Luke 13. If you know the book of Luke, midpoint of chapter 9 on through most of the rest of the book, Jesus is making this long trip down to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He knows where he's headed, and he's slowly making this trip. But Jesus is not like me, and you can be thankful for that. I am a, you can ask my wife, when I want to go somewhere, I get in the car and I don't stop. I just, let's go. We're getting there. I am destination driven. Don't make me stop. Don't bring everything you need. I don't care. Hold it. You hold it. You can hold it. Trust me. Right? <clears throat> Jesus, he just meanders, man. He enjoys the journey. He's stopping. He's having meals. He's just, he, he's very different. He enjoys the journey. So on the journey, he's redeeming it. He's teaching. He's talking. He's sharing. He's healing. He's bringing the kingdom wherever he goes. So chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How you doing? That's why I don't have a phone. It never happens to me. So people following Jesus, they're like, Jesus, have you read the news? Did you read the Daily Discourager today? Did you see what happened over there with the Galileans when Pilate came in and he killed them? And we know if they're making sacrifices, this had to be the Passover because the Passover was the only sacrifice that a family would do by themselves. Read Exodus chapter 12. A family would take the lamb and they would watch it for a while, two weeks, and then it was up to the family to sacrifice that lamb, put the blood on the door, right? So this was somewhere around Passover, and these guys had made their sacrifices, and Pilate had zoomed in and destroyed a bunch of them. So here's what we know about these guys. They were Torah-observant Jews. Good people. 
obeying the law, doing what they were supposed to do. Maybe like if you went to church and after the service, you're taking communion and all of a sudden the police came into that service and just started slaughtering people. It'd be kind of like that. So these people come up to Jesus and they're wanting answers, right? Jesus, did you read the news? Did you hear about the Galileans? Did you hear what Pontius Pilate did to them? There weren't answers. These are good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? Jesus, why? And what does Jesus say? Oh, you think that's bad? Well, what about the 18 construction workers that were working on the Tower of Siloam and it fell and crushed them? That's even worse. Those men left their houses, they kissed their wives, they hugged their children, they headed off to work, and then the tower fell on them and killed them all. Kind of like the Hard Rock Cafe on Saturday. Men left their homes, kissed their wives, hugged their kids, and it fell on them. And Jesus is saying, you better know, life is fragile. Life is is fragile. We all know that though, don't we? It's why we fight death. It's why we drink water instead of Coke. Coke is so much better. If Coke was as healthy as, for you as water, we'd all drink Coca-Cola. That's all we drink. It's why we do Pilates and we go vegan. We go organic. It's why we run marathons. There is no other reason in the world to run than health, right? None whatsoever. But we're all going to die. And today, we don't really like death. And we have this amazing ability today to distract ourselves from death, don't we? You can just entertain yourself to death, literally. Like you don't have to ever think about those things. You just watch something new or acquire something. There's always something new to acquire. You can numb the coming crescendo of your life by just getting more trinkets your whole life. Like we don't even like old people around us anymore. So we warehouse them somewhere, right? We don't really want them in our home anymore. They're kind of awkward and they do things that we're not really comfortable with. So let's put them in a different place. And I'm not saying you can't do that, whatever. But for all of human history until the last 60 years, old people live with their families. That's what they did. So it's a new phenomenon, this thing that we do. Because we're uncomfortable with death. Death, though, it just sneaks up on you, doesn't it? It's just yesterday, I was a freshman in high school. And now I'm 47 years old. I'm on the downhill slope, right? I am. You look at life statistics. I'm now, I'm peaked. I'm on the downhill slope. And yesterday I was a freshman. You ever watch a movie and you're like, when was that made? No, it couldn't be 32 years ago, right? Top Gun was made 32 years ago. I'm like, no, that's impossible. Tom Cruise looks exactly the same today. How does he do that? Boom, it's like that. It sneaks up on you. That's what Jesus is saying. You can go to work tomorrow and a building will fall on you and you'll die. Those people in New Orleans that work on the hard rock did not think today is my last day. It's sneaky, right? But what did the crowd actually want from Jesus? Jesus, didn't you hear the news about Pilate and what he did to those people? Good people. What did they want from Jesus? Maybe you're a revolt. Like, you're an important dude. 
Speak out against this. Get an army together. Let's go down there. Let's cast off Pontius Pilate and his garbage. They could have wanted that. They could have wanted an answer. Like, explain to us the problem of suffering and evil. Jesus, give us an answer. They could have wanted empathy. Ah, it's just too bad. What does Jesus say to them? Repent or it's coming for you. Probably not the answer they wanted, right? Repent or this same thing is coming for you as well. Jesus gives two options and that's it. Repent or perish. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no, okay, you can try this. It's either you're going to repent or like these two groups of people, you will perish. What do you think the crowd would be thinking at this point? Don't ask Jesus any questions. Probably a little bit of fear, right? Kind of afraid, like, oh, yeah, life is fragile. Oh, where am I at on this? Repent or perish. But watch what Jesus does from this point out. What Luke really, his trajectory is. Because now it's finessed. The kingdom is now finessed. Watch. Verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the finessing. Repent or perish, but here's the good news. Your heavenly Father is patient and generous. You've got this fig tree Where's the fig tree planted? In a vineyard. What is normally planted in a vineyard? Grapes, right? So it's in the wrong place. And it also, what are fig trees supposed to produce? What isn't this thing producing? Right? So it's in the wrong place and it's totally unfruitful. So what should happen to it? Perish. It should perish. Wrong place, unfruitful, perish. Three years I've been coming to this thing. No fruit. That's some people in church sometimes. For years I've been coming to church. And there's no fruit. And so a man cruises in, he's like, cut that thing down. You know people like that? <laughs> this dude is fruitless, man. Cut him down. He should be cast out. I can be that way. I'm a result-oriented kind of guy. So I can have that clipboard. Dude, no fruit. You're out. But then, the vine dresser. Who's the vine dresser? If you read John 15, 1, Jesus there says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
intervention. Time out. Time out. God's not rolling around with an 044 steel chainsaw looking for trees to cut down. Perish, perish, perish. Instead, when he looks at you and me, and maybe we're out of sorts and we're unfruitful, guess what he says? I'm gonna give you more effort and more time. Because you're unfruitful, I'm gonna dig around you. I'm gonna put more effort into you. I'm gonna put fertilizer into you. Because you're unfruitful, I'm not gonna make you perish. I'm gonna go the other way with you. More time, more effort. How brilliant is that? How brilliant is that? This idea a couple years ago was just like hammered into me by a story. You probably heard it, but I'll say it again because I love the story. It's Myron, my six-year-old. It was two years ago, so he would have been four. And it was a Saturday morning. My wife was running, so she had left, and it was me and Myron. And Myron at that time, when he used the restroom, I would have to help him or Charity would have to help him. So that morning he has to use the restroom. My wife I know is gone for another 15 minutes or so. I walk into the restroom like, hey, Myron, let me help you. He looked at me and he said, not you. I want mommy. So I said, okay, bud, listen, mommy's gone for like 15 minutes. So it's, it's me, it's my job. I gotta do this. Not you. I want mommy. I'm like, bro, this is not something you're saving for mommy to give her. This is me losing the lottery and I have to do this thing. All right? So I am going to wipe you. Not you. Okay, bud. Fine. So he sat there for 15 minutes. And I sat there and I thought, man. And it was like in that moment, God said, yeah, Matt, that's you. That's you. But you know what? I still love you. And I started thinking about that. And even in that moment with Myron doing his not you thing, I thought, I couldn't love him more. We have to get rid of this goofy idea that God is holding out for a future, more fruitful version of us. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. God can't love you more than he loves you right now. I'm not waiting for Myron to use the bathroom by himself or Myron to stop crawling into my bed at 2 a.m. and turning sideways and kicking my kidneys till one of them ruptures for me to love him more. I'm not waiting for him to bench press 300 pounds. The 200 he does right now is fine. It's legit. <laughs> no. God is so different than us. We say, hack him down, cut him down, perish. He says, no, the unfruitful, out of place, requires more of my time, more effort, more stuff. And he puts manure around him. What does manure smell like? Stinks, right? I think sometimes the stinkiest parts of our lives can produce the most fruit. Sometimes it's the real difficulty, the real valleys, the real troughs, the real issues that when we emerge from them, we become more fruitful. Marriages, parenting, health. Because something happens, you trust the vine dresser more and you realize you're weak. And when you realize you're weak, 
God has the opportunity to be strong on your behalf. And something brilliant happens. All of a sudden, fruit. Wow. And you look back at that same thing when you thought you were perishing, and you said, no, that's what made me productive. Because your heavenly father is patient and generous. Repent or perish. Now verse 10. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there is a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 2001. 18 years. 2001. I was a married without kids at that point. Double income, no kids, right? A dink. Now we're sick. Single income, kids. 18 years, that's a phenomenal amount of time. She's bent over. I don't know what it was, something. We'll find out actually what it is. But it was causing her to be bent over. You know people like that? They're bent over and they're like looking up. 18 years like that. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead him away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Repent or perish. But here's the good news. Jesus has power over the enemies. And there's two of them in this story. Right? You've got this 18-year-old woman, or this woman for 18 years had this issue. If anyone had an an excuse not to go to church? Isn't this lady? I'm sure it hurt. People would gawk at her. Boys would tease her. Girls would fear her. 18 years. 936 Sabbath days. And on the 937th Sabbath day, she's healed. And verse 14 the ruler of the synagogue, or you could just say the pastor, the pastor of this congregation, he gets mad. Now, why does he get mad? Rules, right? He's got these rules, these Sabbath rules he has. Please know this about the law when you read the Old Testament. It was a gift. It was a gift to people to protect them. It's like this. We do foster care. And we have a wood stove at our house. And so they come in, they audit your house, and they're like, that wood stove requires a fence around it. So I had to buy this fence that, that goes about 
18 inches away from the whole wood stove so that kids can't get to the wood stove and get burned, right? So it protects them. And that way they can enjoy my whole house, playing and going crazy and breaking stuff without burning their hand. That's the law. Hey, that's hot. Don't touch it, right? But here's what happened in Israel. They're like, well, that's a good fence, but we should build another fence. So then they build another fence outside of that first fence, and they make it a little bit wider, a little bit bigger, a little bit taller. And they're like, well, someone could possibly potentially get their hand over this thing and maybe just touch the stove. So then they built another fence that was bigger and taller and wider than that first fence or the second fence. And pretty soon, the whole house is filled with fences, and everyone has to just sit in a corner. And like, man, the law doesn't seem like a gift anymore. I'll give you an example. The, the Sabbath rule is about a, less than a paragraph in the Bible, all of them combined. The Mishnah, which is the interpretation of the Bible, had 24 pages on that one paragraph. Fence after fence after fence after fence after fence, and it become, became intolerable. No longer was the Sabbath a gift for men to rest and enjoy themselves. Now it was this burden that just got to sit in a corner all day. Ugh, what a bummer. This is a bummer. It's still kind of that way. So my wife and I, back in 2016, we went to Israel. And we were there for three Sabbaths, and the place just shuts down. And like, you're not allowed to press a switch or a button because when you press an electric button, a spark happens, and that's kindling a fire. And you cannot kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. So the elevators, you get on them, you can't push a button. You just get off whenever the elevator decides randomly to open. Unless there's a Gentile on the elevator, and then they'll ask you, hey, would you push floor number three? I'm like, I don't care, man. I know where I'm going. Jesus is my righteousness, and I know my elevator's going up. So whatever button you want, brother right? It's still there, like this craziness. Boundary after boundary after boundary after boundary. And that's what was happening to this guy. Hell, these rules. The Sabbath was no longer a time of enjoyment, of rest, of not doing but being a human. You're a human being. Just be that today. Enjoy God's pleasure in you. It was no longer that. It was just so rigid tyranny. But there could be a second reason. Notice he says this. He said, heal on the other six days. I think he may have been mad because he knew he could never heal like that. And he's jealous. Pastors can get jealous of other people. They can. We just faced this situation with uh, my, my wife's aunt and uncle who love Jesus. They're awesome. They love Rick Warren. And then someone told them that Rick Warren's a cult leader. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Have you read about Rick Warren? He's unbelievable. Do you know that he has paid back every cent Saddleback Church has ever, ever paid him? He paid it all back. When he started making some money off his books, they counted up everything, interest in everything, and he says, cut a check to him. Do you know that he still drives a 1997 Ford Ranger? Like, that's close to a Model T today. He's fine with it. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Now, do I agree 100% with everything Rick Warren says? No. Do I agree 100% with anybody? No. 
If I did, there'd be no need for both of us. One of us could just die, right? No, it's just sometimes you just got to, oh, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And he doesn't talk to Jesus. Who's he talk to? Look at verse 14. He said to the people, if you got an issue with somebody, guess what you're supposed to do? It's Matthew 18. You go to that person. Hey, man, I don't understand what you're doing on the Sabbath. Can you explain this to me? He doesn't. He tries to slander and malign instead of going privately, personally, to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Verse 15, you hypocrite. (laughs) Tell us what you really think, Jesus. You hypocrite, are you kidding me? He is tender to this broken woman, and he is tough on this bully. I love that about Jesus. Tender to the broken, tough to the bullies. Who would you be in this story? Are you the pastor? Pointing out everybody's flaw, I've got the gift of discernment. Sure. I would call that something else. Be so careful of that. Are you the woman? Know this. The one person Jesus notices in this church is a woman who for 18 years had been broken and hurt. And he points her out and calls her over. Jesus notices the broken. He notices the tree that's not producing fruit. And he says, more effort, more time for you. He notices it. He's drawn to that tender love? Or are we the crowd that were joyful that this woman had been healed? Do you rejoice when someone else gets blessed? It's a command. It's Romans 12. We're supposed to rejoice with those that rejoice. This crowd goes crazy. They're like, yes, that's so awesome. Also, you call their pastor a hypocrite, which we've wanted to do for a while. So thank you, Jesus. Two for one. (laughs) That was random, by the way. Jesus, repent or perish, but here's the good news. He's got power over your enemies. Inside the church and the enemy outside the church. Because Satan was binding this woman. That's the good news. Verse 18. He said, therefore, whenever you see those little therefore statements, it's tied together. So that means whenever Jesus had done this on the Sabbath, he then explained something. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all 
leavened. Repent or perish, but here's the good news, sneaky growth. The kingdom has this sneaky growth. So this man goes to his garden, not an orchard. He goes to this garden and he plants a mustard seed. Why would you plant a mustard seed in a garden? Because they only, they're, they're, they, the, the plant itself only grows like four feet tall. It's a garden plant. It's not an orchard plant. But something weird happens to this mustard seed. Tiny, tiny little seed. It all of a sudden becomes this massive tree. And this woman has, according to the NASB, 42 pounds of flour. That is a lot of flour. She takes a pinch of leaven, she works it, and the leaven goes throughout the entire 42 pounds, three measures of flour. The whole thing is infiltrated by the leaven. This story is connected to the previous story. Because when Jesus heals this woman of this 18-year disease, everyone knows he's Messiah. What would they be expecting of Messiah? Go get the bad guy. Go get Pilate, right? Messiah's going to come. He's going to kick off Rome. He's going to free us from the Pilates that come and kill our good people. That's what they're expecting. All right, let's rejoice. Cool. Messiah's here. He's going to set us free. So Jesus says, wait a second. That's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom has sneaky growth. It starts out small, like a mustard seed. You put it in an unexpected spot, and it grows rapidly. You put it in flour like leaven, and the whole thing is infiltrated by the kingdom. That's what the kingdom's like. It has a sneaky growth. Is that how the kingdom worked? Sure seems like it. Jesus had 11 disciples. Those 11 disciples became 120 in an upper room. Those 120 at Pentecost turned into 3,000. Those 3,000, as, as you watch Rome, by 8350, 50% of the Roman Empire believes in Jesus. Now, people will say, well, that was Constantine. No, it wasn't. Constantine saw something. He's like, wow, that's working. The Zeus thing over here doesn't seem to be working, but the Jesus, he's a politician. The Je- hey, let's all believe in Jesus now that 50% of the people are Jesus people, right? He's a smart politician. It was already happening. Right? It just grows, 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 grows like that. It's amazing. Has it changed the world? Oh, my goodness. You know where we got Hospitals. In the ancient days, plagues would rip into a city. And what happened in a city is this. The rich people could take their stuff and depart to their summer castle somewhere else. But the poor people would die. Happened all the time. All of a sudden, Christians started appearing in these places. And they said, that's unacceptable. Because everyone's been created in the image of God. Doesn't matter rich, poor, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter, you're all created in the image of God and you can't let someone die on the side of the street and be eaten by dogs. As they took these people into their homes and they stayed in the cities and something amazing happened. If you would feed somebody, protect them from wild animals and give them water, 
about half of them would survive. And guess what happened to somebody that had been protected and taken care of? Guess what they would usually do? I want the same Jesus that you have, right? And then out of this came, well, we should have places where people that are sick could go and get help. Hospitals are a direct result of the gospel, that infiltration of our world. Orphanages, where'd they come from? You go back 2,000 years, your parents die, <laughs> good luck to you. You'd run around crazy, you know, bands of roving orphans. And the Christian says, that's unacceptable. You're an image bearer of God. We can't let that happen. So they started taking care and bringing in these kids and more and more came in and pretty soon they're like, well, we've got 100 kids in here. What do we call this thing? Call an orphanage. Colleges. Where did colleges come from? Harvard and Princeton. Do you know why they were founded? To teach people the Bible. Now you're not allowed to have the Bible there. It's hate speech, right? They were founded to teach the Bible, right? Our education was we should use this incredible muscle that God has given to us called the brain. We should apply ourselves to science and we should learn stuff about our world. Why? Because we know God's made it in such a way to be understood. It's not this chaotic, crazy thing. It's made to be understood. And so it can just go on and on and on. The kingdom, it's like these things, just sneaky Sneaky growth. The rights that we have, they've been informed by Christianity. So a group of people back in the 1600s, John Milton, Benedict Spinoza, Thomas Harp, John Locke, they got together. They read the Bible. Not all of them were believers. They read the Bible and they came up with these. They said, these are the foundations of Western civilization directly from Scripture. Number one, social contract. It means this. You should care about your neighbor, not just yourself. Right? Government, same thing. Government can't just care about itself. It's got to care about wider social contract. Number two was the moral limits of power. Just because you're king doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You can't just go kill people. The moral limits of power. The doctrine of toleration, which was this. Toleration doesn't mean everyone group thinks and believes the same thing. Their doctrine of toleration was this. It's how you treat people that you fundamentally disagree with. And they said you treat them with love and respect. Because Jesus said, love your enemy as yourself. That's the doctrine of toleration. Then the liberty of conscience, which meant this. You're allowed to think what you want to think. Like we're not, gonna kinda, we're not going to try to control your thoughts or your thought life. You have your own ability given by God to think the thoughts you want to think. Man, is that under attack today? Hmm. Comes from the Bible. And then the last one was this. Basic human rights for every individual. That there are certain things that you cannot take because they are image bearers of God. Right? Directly from the gospel infiltrating the world. It's exactly like Jesus said. It's not coming like you think. It's not with a sword. It's not me taking out Pilate. This thing's like a seed. It has this sneaky growth. It's like leaven that gets in and just infiltrates the whole thing. That's what it does. It's brilliant. It's amazing. It's also the same thing with you and me. When the kingdom comes into my life, sometimes we want immediate fruit. But it's more like a tree. It might be three years, plus a year, plus some manure. 
before you start seeing fruit. And that's okay. That's okay. Because what you'll find is this. There'll be a moment where things click. Has it ever happened to you? You're talking with a coworker. You're talking with a friend. You're talking with a neighbor. They ask you about Jesus. They ask you something. And all of a sudden, you start quoting scripture. And like when you're done, you're like, oh my goodness. That was like Billy Graham. Man, I'm awesome. What happened? Sneaky growth. Just sneaky growth. God's dunged you. He's manured you. And now you're producing fruit. It's awesome. So then he went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, this is so awesome. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus, is it just you and me, man? (laughs) Are we the only one making it in the kingdom? Like what a random question. Like all these other morons, they're not getting in, are they? It's just us. The frozen chosen, right? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer. I do not know where you are come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're coming from. Depart from me, all you workers of of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west North and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. Some are first who will be last. Repent or perish. But here's the good news. God casts a big net. God casts a big net. Right, this guy's random question. Is it just us, man? Is it just a few? Jesus' answer, verse 28, is, well, it may not be you. You may not be in. What a stunning response that is. I'm not sure you're in, bro. (laughs) There's going to be a giant reversal in the kingdom. Those that you thought, man, they're going to be front, or not. And those that you said never are there. It's a giant reversal. And so Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. What does that mean? Does narrow gate mean that a select few are going to get saved? I don't think so at all. Read Revelation. Myriads are saved. It's a word just means whatever. You can make it as big as you want. Lots are going to be saved. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. The narrowness of the gate is this. There's only one way in. 
There's not many paths to heaven. There's not many roads that all lead to the top. There's one way in. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. No one gets to the Father but by me. I'm the only way in. I am the narrow gate. Now, that does not mean that that requires a missionary with a Bible. Like sometimes we think, oh, what about the Aborigines or, you know, whatever it is, whatever people go off on. Well, are we going to limit God to a missionary with a Bible? You shouldn't. Read the book, Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Brilliant book. Where he goes through these ancient civilizations before a missionary and a Bible ever got there to show the gospel had already arrived. The best example is Machu Picchu, the guy that built Machu Picchu, the city that no one could find. Everyone knew about it, no one could find it, right? The hidden city. The guy that built that, as isolated as a person as you can get. Because he was the builder and he was the king, his thoughts are recorded. And they worship the sun and made human sacrifices to the sun. And one day he comes out of his castle and he looks and a cloud passes in front of the sun and blots it out. And he said, that's silly. A cloud can blot out my God. And the cloud went by and he stuck his thumb up and he blotted out the sun with his thumb. He goes, I can blot out my God. That's not God. That's not a God. And he began to search. And what he discovered about God is unbelievable. God is our father. He does not want human sacrifice. He loves us. In fact, he sent his own son to be the sacrifice for us. It's unbelievable. It's as gospel as you can get the gospel before a Bible or before a missionary ever got there. Why? Because the Bible says, if you'll search for me, you will find me when you search with your whole heart. There's none that God's gonna miss. There's not a single person that's ever lived in history that God's not going to get if God said, you're part of my crew. You're coming home with me. He will get them. Now, are we still still supposed to send out missionaries? Fully. Do we still have that great privilege? Absolutely, we get a partner with God, but we don't ever limit God. The narrow gate, the narrow gate is him. And we are gonna be amazed when we get to the table at who's there. It's going to be thrilling and brilliant from east, from west, from north to south, everywhere. And then Jesus says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow And the third day, I finished my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Repent or perish, and here is the good news. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. These Pharisees come out that aren't his friends, and they say, look out. Herod wants to kill you. And he goes, you tell that fox. I'm not afraid of him. I've got a mission to accomplish. And until that mission is accomplished, I am bulletproof. And then he says, I'm like a chicken wanting to gather together all these little chicklets. What does a fox do to a chicken? Right? Have you ever seen a stained glass of Jesus as a chicken? I've seen the lion, I've seen the lamb, I've seen the servant, I've seen the king, I've seen someone try to do Revelation 19 in stained glass. I've never seen the chicken. And yet it's one Jesus directly compares himself to. How modern is that? Like, we love chickens today, don't we? Like, there's a website that sells chicken diapers because people let them into their homes now. It's insanity. When I was up in Portland, I would ride the Max every once in a while, and it seemed like every time I'd be up there, there'd be some hipster who would come rolling in with a chicken underneath his arm. Just, I'm just like, that is so strange. I hope it has a diaper on it, because, bro, that'd be gross. It's very modern. It's like, oh. Here's what amazes me about chickens. I like chickens. I had this one that was broody, super broody, hyper broody. She was laying on one egg. She wouldn't leave it. It was like, you know, they, they just don't eat anymore. They'll just sit there and sit there and sit there. But we had no rooster, so she's going to sit there. So just trying to get her up. So finally I decided, you know what? I'm going to go buy some one-day old chicks, and I'm going to just see what happens. So I went and bought five of these little chicks, and I brought them to her, and I just picked her up, and I shoved them all underneath her and just held her down for like five minutes. That's, the, that's what they said to do on, online. So I just hold her, and she's like, getting mad at me. And then I let her up, and she stands up, and she's like, oh my goodness. Like, she was more shocked than me. Like, whoa, it worked. I'm glad she couldn't count, because there's only one egg, and now there's five chicks, but they're not that smart. Change my Facebook status. I'm a mom. Right? <laughs> What amazed me was the transformation in that hen, right? So I tried to reach back in there and grab one of the chicks. Guess what she did? Attacked me, right? We had a couple goats then. We had a horse then. She'd be walking around these little chicklets. They'd be falling her. The goats would come over. She'd get all puffed up and run at those goats. And the goats are like, what in the world? Girl, you are crazy, man. The horses are staying away from her. She just had to run in the place. Protecting her chicks. If a fox attacks a chicken with chicks, what choices does that chicken have? It could fly away, right? And the chicks would be done. Or sacrifice itself so her chicks get free. This is the analogy. I wanted to gather. You wouldn't let me, but it doesn't change my mind. It doesn't change my mind. Even though you wouldn't even let me gather you, even though you run from me, even though you won't let me help you in the bathroom, it doesn't change my mind about you. I'm still going to let the fox, I'm still going to let the fox kill me 
so that you don't perish. See, this is the good news. You don't have to perish. Jesus perished so we wouldn't have to. So we could be the ones that say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The repentance Jesus is talking about here is change your mind about me. Change your mind about me. I'm not walking around with an ax trying to cut you down. I'm not waiting for an opportunity to take you out. I'm the one that's going to allow the fox to take me out so it never happens to you. The repentance is change your mind about me. I'm the good, generous Savior that you want. Change your mind about me. So Jesus, this day, would you correct in me the misconceptions that I have about you? That you don't look at my brokenness cast me off. You look at my brokenness of not 18 years, but 47 years, and you call me in, come to me. You're healed, you're loosed, you're loved, you're saved. That you don't look at my unfruitfulness, my misplacedness, and say perish, you say more effort more time. I pray for each of us, Lord, that your goodness and your greatness and your love and your mercy and your grace, that they would push out all misconceptions about you and that we could see you as you truly are and you would draw us in to this sneaky, beautiful, incredible kingdom that grows in ways we cannot imagine and accomplishes what nothing else can, the redemption of humanity. So stir our hearts for you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.